0: Good morning, Woodland Hills. How are you doing this morning? Are you awake? Are you ready to hear the word? All right, let's get to it. After a few announcements. Hey, uh, I'm Greg, among the teaching pastors here at Woodland Hills Church. Kleenexes are up here and available if you're crying. Feel free to come up here, and they're for free. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, I want to give a special welcome to you. Glad that you're here, and if you'd like to find out Uh, more about this church and what we're uh, about and what we believe in and what we're called to do. Stop by at the Hub out there and tell them that you're visiting and we have a special packet that we'd like to give you with a CD and things like that. Uh, Please turn off your cell phones and pagers and iPods and any other noisemaker, I'd appreciate it. And if anyone with you uh, starts to be a distraction, we encourage you to take them out in the gathering area uh, out there and you can still be a part of the service that way. Uh, That's it. We really have no other announcements. Uh, Just read the bulletin and uh, get online and look at the website. Find out all the stuff that's going on around here. And if this is your spiritual body, we really would encourage you to pray over all the ministries that are there, all the opportunities that are there. Uh, We're always looking for more of a prayer covering because that's what makes the kingdom work. Amen? Amen. Amen. We are in the book of Colossians in this season of our church. And uh, we're up to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, this is going to be uh, the second part of a little series I'm doing on Colossians chapter two, verses thirteen through fifteen. Powerful, powerful uh, passage of scripture. We started last week, and God just fell. Uh, it, 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 man, a lot of chains were broken last week. That was, that was beautiful, Amen. and uh, that was really a foundation foundational teaching for what we're going to finish up this week. We're we're looking at the question of of uh, how did the cross uh, defeat the powers and make them and turn them into a public spectacle. So we're calling this message the sting because we're going to see here this morning that uh, what God did on the cross was kind of a sting operation in getting victory over the enemy. And this is not just a interesting theological sort of reflection, though it is that as well. But when we understand how. God managed to outwit the enemy on the cross. Well, it has the power to just get into places that it otherwise wouldn't get into and to to set us free in ways that maybe we otherwise wouldn't be set free. You'll see what I'm talking about here in a little bit. So Colossians chapter two, verses 13 through 15. It says, when you were dead in your sins. I don't know if you knew it or not, but you were dead in your sins. Everyone outside of Christ is Dead. And when you were in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, which means you're just alienated from God, God made you alive with Christ. Not just like Christ, but with Christ. We share in his life. He forgave us all of our sins. All of them. And here's how he did it. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, Uh which stood against us, which condemned us. And he has taken it away, all of it, nailing it to the cross. The charge of our indebtedness nailed to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, a laughingstock of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba, Father, I, I, I just thank you for this word, powerful word. I pray, God, that, that uh, it, you, by the power of your spirit, make it come alive to us. Everyone in this auditorium, everyone listening through the podcast or television or any other means, make it come alive. Give it your power. Give it your authority. Set the captives free. Break every chain, every every, every bondage, every stronghold in our mind, every element of our being that does not agree with your word, is not in, in congruity with your word, God. Break it. Blow it apart. I, 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 obliterate it, Lord God. And, and God, uh, help us, God, empower us, God, to walk in the freedom of your kingdom, the, the, the glory of your kingdom. Empower us to walk free uh, from the accuser and, and free, Lord God, to dance with you. Set us free, Lord. So many things constrict us. So many things bind us, inhibit us. Set us free, Lord God. Set us free by the power of your word. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. Okay, just uh, by way of review, we saw last week that this passage says that there's three things that Jesus, or that God accomplished on the cross. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness that Satan and the cosmic authorities held against us. Didn't just cancel our sin, and, just, and didn't just cancel our indebtedness. He canceled the charge of our, our indebtedness, which means the power of the indebtedness to indict us. The authority of the enemy to indict us with that is gone. He didn't just get rid of our debt. He blew apart the whole economy, we said last week. And then he triumphed over these cosmic demonic authorities on the cross, and he made a public spectacle of them. The way he conquered was such that it humiliated them, made them into a laughingstock. And so the question that we're asking, we started asking last week, and we're going to address today, is how did he do that? How, how does that work? How did the cross managed to accomplish that? Because you wouldn't think that. I mean, the cross is is usually, I mean, in the ancient world was identified with weakness. And um, I mean, it's, you're a victim. And yet here God takes this person who you ordinarily would think was a, a completely helpless victim and somehow uses that to end the reign of the demonic authorities over this earth. How did he do that? We, we uh, mentioned last week one way that he didn't do that, and it's the way that I think most people think he did do it. And that is that uh, people have this idea that God the Father was uh, holding our sin against us and was enraged at our sin and had a wrath towards us and, and was going to vent that wrath towards us, and we would have we been damned. But Jesus stepped in and said, no, Dad, don't take it out on them, take it out on me. And so God vented his wrath against Jesus, and we're off the hook. It's called the penal substitution view of the atonement. and uh, As I did last week, I'd encourage you not to think about what happened on the cross that way. There's a lot of problems with that way of thinking about uh, the atonement. Um, One of them is this. It confuses God with Satan. It confuses God with Satan, as in so many other areas. Christians confuse God with Satan. The passage that we read here this morning says that when our sin, when the, when the charge of our indebtedness was canceled, it disarmed the principalities and powers, which means that the principalities and authorities and powers, Satan and all that realm, our sin was their ammunition against us. If it was canceled and it disarmed them, then that means they were the ones who were holding our sin against us. They were the ones who were using our sin as ammunition against us, you see? And so it wasn't God who held our sin against us. It was Satan and the principalities and powers. It's Satan, not God, who accuses us. It's Satan, not God, who demands retribution. It's it's Satan, not God, who demands a blood payment. It's Satan, not God, who demands that sinners get their just punishment. It's so crucial that we understand that God is not the accuser. It's the main way that people think about God. God is the scary one up in the sky looking at us with this critical eye. He's the accuser. But see, the Bible says that Satan is the accuser. Revelation 12.10. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's, he's always out there putting out our weaknesses, putting out our faults, condemning us, indicting us, demanding justice against us. That's Satan. It's not God. And we saw last week throughout the whole Bible. He's the inspector severe and in Les Miserables. He's the one who's always looking to, 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 to condemn us. It, it so grieves me that... So many Christians, and truth be told, so many Christian theologians confuse God with Satan. Not a minor mistake. It's kind of foundational. Confuse God with Satan. It's the oldest demonic trick in the book. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Satan projects his evil onto God and gets us to believe it. Because when we believe that deceptive, ugly, demonic picture of God, well then... That's how it keeps us in trap. Then we're on our own. Then we do what Adam and Eve did, and we've been doing it ever since. Uh, We've become self-reliant. We're we're on our own. Find any sin, any sin pattern in your life. This is true of the Garden of Eden. It's true of us today. Find any sin, trace it back far enough, and at its root you'll find a demonic picture of God. A, A God that you cannot trust. It's what fuels all sin. It's what keeps us in bondage. This ugly demonic picture of God. So everything hangs on our, 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 our seeing that God is not Satan. Here's a logical theorem that I'd like to share with you. It's the, the most fundamental logical theorem there is. It's the law of identity and, and, and contradiction. If A is not B, then B is not A. Pretty profound, huh? Which means if I'm not you, then you're not me. It's pretty simple. In the same way, if if, if God, if Satan is the accuser and And Satan is the adversary, that's what the word Satan means, adversary, one who opposes, the opposite of. If if Satan is the accuser and he's the opposite of God, then God is the opposite of the accuser. It's the law law of identity and self-contradiction. If if Satan is the accuser and is the antithesis, the opposite of God, then God is the antithesis of the accuser. So God not only is not the accuser, God is the anti-accuser. He's the opposite of the accuser. He's your defender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He opposes the one who accuses us. He rebukes the one who accuses us. We saw last week in Zechariah chapter 3, that beautiful passage, where the high the, the priest Joshua is in this court of heaven and, and Satan is accusing him. And it says that the Lord rebuked the accuser. Even though what the accuser was saying was true. Even though Joshua was in fact dressed in dirty rags representing his sin. God doesn't dispute what the accuser is saying. No, Joshua has dirty clothes. But God rebukes the fact that the accuser is pointing that out. As if that was the most important thing about his beloved Joshua. As if as if that guilt was what defined his, his beloved Joshua. As if the dirty clothes that Joshua was wearing defined who he was. As if the dirty clothes was greater than the love of God. What God is saying here is, yeah, my, my 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 beloved Joshua and my beloved Greg and my beloved Sue and my beloved Rob and my beloved Charlie. Yeah, they got dirty clothes on. But how dare you point that out about my beloved? Don't you know that? My love for my beloved isn't affected by those dirty clothes. I can change those dirty clothes. <laughs> That's not a problem for my love. No way, no. How dare you point that out about him? He protects us from the accuser. His love dwarfs and significates the dirty clothes that we wear. God's not the one who needs a blood payment. God's not the one who's bent out of shape by our sin. That is Satan. But how often we, we, we confuse God and Satan as, as though they were one and the same. God is as opposed to accusation. As God is opposed to Satan because Satan is the accuser. God is as opposed to accusation as God is, uh, as, as light is as opposed to darkness, as good is as, as, as opposed to evil, as life is opposed to death. You, he's the opposite of that. He's the anti accuser. Everything hangs. And our understanding that God does not look like the accuser. Oh no. God looks like Jesus dying on the cross, praying for our forgiveness with his last breath. That's the opposite. Of the accuser. That's what God looks like. By what, When Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. If you see me, you see the Father. John 14, 9. That applies as much when Jesus is dying on the cross praying for the forgiveness of those who are executing him, which is us. That applies as much on the cross as it applies to any, any point in his life. That's what the Father looks like. Jesus isn't protecting us from the Father's wrath. No, he's expressing the Father's love. Yeah. Hebrews 1 says that the Son is the the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his very essence. That applies as much on the cross as it applies to any point in Jesus' life. That's the heart of God, the essence of God. He's praying for our forgiveness. He's dying for our forgiveness. He's the opposite of the accuser. He rebukes the accuser. He defeats the accuser. The problem that God had to solve by becoming a human being and dying on the cross, the problem he had to solve was not the problem of getting God the Father off of our back. The problem he had to solve by becoming a human and dying on the cross was getting Satan off of our back. Mm, And it reframes everything when we see that. There's a whole lot of liberating truth packed into that little revelation right there. God the Father is not the problem. Satan is. God the Father is the the solution. And his character and his love is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. A much better way of thinking about what Jesus did on Calvary and what God was up to on Calvary... A much better way is expressed by C.S. Lewis and his wonderful Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'm sure a lot of you have read it or seen the uh, the movie. It's it's, it's brilliant. And I'm going to show uh, us a little clip about this because it's such a beautiful representation of uh, the atonement. Uh, In the scene that we're going to look at here, um, what you need to know to set this up is that uh, there's these four kids who got into this magical land called Narnia. And uh, Narnia is run by a rule by this wonderful lion named Aslan. He represents Christ. But his rule is challenged by this icy, wicked queen, witch gal. Um, and and uh, what had happened is that uh, one of the four kids had, had uh, betrayed Aslan and his siblings, this snivelly brat named Edmund. And uh, had gone over to the queen's side and In time, he finally wised up to how wicked the queen was, so he was able to escape, went back to Aslan's camp. And the scene we're going to look at here, there's actually a few scenes, but the first scene is is when the the wicked queen comes to uh, get Edmund back, because he belongs to her. And then the scene following that is one where we we see Aslan goes into the enemy's camp, this queen with all of her wicked demonic minions, and offers himself up. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Let's uh, watch it. You have a traitor in your midst, Aslan? His offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the laws upon which Narnia was built? Do not cite the deep magic to me, witch. I was there when it was written. Then you'll remember well that every traitor belongs to me. His blood is my property. Aslan knows that unless I have blood, as the law demands, all of Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. That boy will die on the stone table. As is tradition. You dare not refuse me. Enough. I shall talk with you alone. Okay. Uh-huh. He might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and even death itself would turn backwards. We sent the news that you were dead. Peter and Evan will have gone to war. We have to help them. We will, dear one, but not alone. Climb on my back. We have far to go. A little time to get there, and you may want to cover your ears. And yeah, that is a brilliant uh, and very biblical expression of the atonement, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If the wicked queen had understood the true meaning of sacrifice, true meaning of the deep magic. She would have understood that what she was doing was going to backfire. But she didn't. She's evil. She can't get that. And that just captures so beautifully the the sting dimension of the the cross. See, who is it that holds uh, the accusation against Edmund? Who is it that demands a blood payment, a kill? It's not Aslan. It's the wicked queen. It's Satan. And truth is that we are, we are the Edmund, and we were, we were owned by the wicked queen. We have uh, committed treason. Every sin is an act of treason against God, and, and the, the wicked queen, uh, the witch, had authority over us. But Aslan, in giving his life, has set us free and has broken the, the stone table of, of uh, justice against, that the enemy used against us, and that has set us free. It's so profound, the way that that film uh, captures this is key, key element that's so often overlooked. About what Jesus accomplished on the cross. What I want to do here is, is just look at five biblical truths that highlight the sting dimension, the wisdom of God, and, and the sting dimension of uh, the, the cross. It's so often missed. Five, five biblical clues to what's going on here. The first is that God kept his, his secret, his plan secret. Uh, in, in the film uh, that we saw in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the only one who knows what's going on is Aslan. No one else has a clue. The Queen, her minions they don't have a clue. Even Lucy and Susan and the people who are on Aslan's side, they don't know what's going on. Only Aslan understands the plan by which he's going to set Edmund free. And the same is true in Scripture. We find emphasized quite strongly throughout the New Testament this idea that that God's plan of redemption was kept hidden and secret. So we find, for example, in Colossians 1... Uh, the statement that that the, the mystery refers to the mystery that's been kept kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. We talked about this several months ago when we uh, preached on this passage. This phrase, ages and generations, uh, it, it refers to the uh, different, different chronologies between the angelic realm and the human realm, ages and generations. And, and so what, what, what Paul is saying here is that uh, this plan was kept secret, not only from humans, but from angels. Several times Paul says that the secret was hidden in God for, for a purpose that we'll see here in a moment. He, he kept this thing secret. His, his way of defeating the enemy was kept secret throughout uh, all, all of history. First, First Corinthians, a very important passage, uh, alludes to this secret as well. It says this. Paul says, We speak the message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. They're coming to nothing. They're They're disappearing. No, we declare God's wisdom. And God's wisdom is a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. This wisdom is going to result in our glory. It was destined before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood this wisdom, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This phrase rulers here are kanton in Greek. It refers to the the rulers and the authorities in the the spiritual realm. Satan and his whole hierarchy of archangels that rebelled against God. And the passage doesn't say that they didn't know that Jesus was the Lord of glory. It says that they they knew he was the Lord of glory, but they didn't understand the wisdom of God and and the Lord of glory becoming a human being and making himself vulnerable to the cross. That was a secret. Was a, it was a wisdom that was hidden, a mystery that was hidden in God from before uh, the foundation of the world. And because they didn't understand that wisdom, they or- orchestrated the crucifixion. And uh, as a result, the whole thing backfired, which is why they wouldn't have done it if they would have understood the wisdom of God. Because of the cross, they're being brought to nothing, Paul says. They're, they're on their way out. They're, they're, they're in the process of, of disappearing. The second fact is this. The second biblical fact that alludes to this wisdom is this. The demons recognize Jesus, but they don't understand why he's come. You find it throughout the Gospels. Uh, they, they say things like, like uh, in Matthew 8, uh, Why are you here, Son of God? Are you here to torment us before our time? Yeah, they, 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 they recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Unlike humans, they know who Jesus is, but they can't figure out why he's here. So they guess at it. Like, are you here to torment us? Our time's not up yet, is it? They know a time is coming, but they... They think that, that maybe is why Jesus came, uh, but this, they knew that it didn't right. Their time wasn't up yet, so they're guessing at this. They don't, they don't get it. The whole demonic realm doesn't understand why Jesus came to earth. Because see, as I said last week, to the extent that any being is evil, you don't get love. You don't understand love motivation because you don't have it. You can never understand something that is not part of your inner world. So they don't get love-motivated behavior. They get law-motivated behavior, but they don't get love-motivated behavior. And so they don't understand love, so they don't understand the wisdom of God, because the wisdom of God is all motivated by love. And so when Jesus shows up here on earth, they can't fathom the possibility that he's come here to rescue humans. Why would he care about this race of sniveling, rebellious Edmunds? Uh, well, why would the creator care about this little race of people who think that they're God? It doesn't occur to them, and that's why they end up playing into his, his plan. What the demons and what the, uh, Satan and, and all of his realm do know is that if Jesus is human, if he's human and if he's come into their realm, well then he's killable. Because Satan has seized this earth and whatever's on this earth is under his authority, so they know that he is, he is killable if he's here on earth. And so they set about to crucify him, which leads to my third point, I've already alluded to it. Uh, Satan in the demonic realm, they, they help orchestrate the crucifixion, but they wouldn't have if they understood the wisdom of God. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, they, they were at work to, to work in, in the heart of human beings who, their own free decisions, have made themselves open to demonic influence. When a person sins and Persist in a, in a pattern of behavior, you become vulnerable. The more you give in to enemy influence, the more vulnerable you are to the enemy's influence. And so Satan in the demonic realm manipulated human beings to bring about the crucifixion. We see that in 1 Corinthians 2. We see other indications of it elsewhere as well. For example, in John 13, it says that Satan, when Judas had taken the bread and the Last Supper, Satan entered him. And, and Jesus said to him, what you're about to do, do quickly. So here we find Judas, of his own free will, had made decisions that made him vulnerable to the enemy. His last act of hypocrisy was taking the communion as though he was part of the fellowship. And, uh, and so Satan enters him. Jesus, knowing that, says, what you're going to do, do quickly. And so here we get the indication that Satan is influencing Judah, Judas uh, to uh, betray Jesus, which is going to lead to the, the crucifixion. It lets us know that Satan was involved in this whole, the whole thing and the angelic powers were involved in bringing about the crucifixion. But see, all the while, they were playing into God's plan. All the while, in their evil behavior, uh, they, were, they were fulfilling God's sting operation. The fourth point, fourth biblical truth, is that Jesus was sinless. And whoever's sinless is not under the enemy's authority. This also relates to uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, story. The queen had had a legitimate right to kill Edmund because Edmund had committed treason, and treason deserves death, and the queen is the lord of death, just like Satan is the lord of death in Hebrews 2.14. She has authority over that realm, so she could legitimately execute uh, Edmund. But see, Aslan was innocent, and Aslan was not under her authority, so his death was not just. His death was rather an act of self-sacrificial love, which is why his death released the deep magic, the power of the deep magic that could break apart the stone tablets of justice, Uh, Which the queen used to accuse everybody. So, in the act of killing the innocent Aslan, she forfeits her right to ever accuse anyone again. And that's exactly what happens in the Bible. Uh, We we, we find Jesus saying this in in John 14. He says, I I will not say, he says to his disciples, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. There's that word archon again. So, out in 1 Corinthians 2, the ruler. The Lord it can be translated. The Lord of this world is coming. That's Satan. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded. Here we see that Satan is this ruler, and Jesus says he's coming, referring to his the operation of the crucifixion. He was already there, of course, and. We see that he's, he was tempting Jesus already, but he's coming with his final military act, trying to with the crucifixion, trying to win this war. Satan is coming, but Jesus speaks about his coming as though he was doing the world a favor, and here Jesus is hinting at the sting dimension of the crucifixion, because see, he says when, when when this prince, this archon, comes and ends up crucifying me, he doesn't have a hold on me, so he can't hold me. Uh, Everyone else deserves death, but I don't. And so his killing is an unjust murder, and I'm doing this as an act of self-sacrificial love. And so when he crucifies me, the world will know that, that I love the Father, and the world will know that I, do, I always do what the Father commands me, which is, means he's sinless. And so the world will know that this whole thing backfires on, on the enemy. In a sense, Satan does the world a favor by crucifying Jesus. In fact, in a very real sense, it's, it's Satan's credit that he does this. But he's doing it out of his own evil. He's doing it with his own malicious purposes, but he's playing into God's plan all the while he's plotting this and carrying this out, which leads to my fifth point, which is simply a repetition of, of Colossians chapter 2, uh, where the passage we read, where we see the crucifixion canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Here's why Satan was doing the world a favor in crucifying Jesus. And, and the, the cross defeated Satan and the authorities, and the way that it did, it turned them into a public spectacle. Uh, we see this in uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the War- Wardrobe, where the Adam is in bondage to the queen because of his treason, and the queen has authority over him. But while the law says that specifies that the queen has a right to execute anyone who's guilty and under her authority, the correct interpretation of the law, which the queen could not get because she's evil, the correct interpretation of the law specifies that if the queen executes anyone, anyone who's not guilty and therefore not under her authority, anyone who's dying as a voluntary act of self-sacrificial love, well, that will release the deep magic. And that is the deepest power in all of Narnia, which has the power to break the stone tablets of justice and set the condemned free and disempower the queen from ever accusing anyone again. And that is exactly what we find in Scripture. Satan and the principalities and powers they are evil. And so they don't understand love, so they don't understand the wisdom of God. So they misinterpret they misinterpret uh, the, the meaning of sacrifice. They see it as you know, carrying out their justice and getting their due. When in fact, it's about self-sacrificial love. They, they miss the deepest truth there is in Narnia and in this world. And that is that self-sacrificial love trumps everything. In the long run, self-sacrificial love is the most powerful force in the universe. And, and there's no greater act of self-sacrificial love than God becoming a human being. And and dying for a race of people who couldn't deserve it less. The the principalities and powers can't fathom that. Yeah. But what they have is a rage towards God that blinds them to this beautiful truth. And and that rage leads them to crucify the Lord of glory. And therefore, they crucify one who is innocent. And therefore, they crucify one who is not under their authority. One who is dying as an act of self-sacrificial love. And that is why His sacrifice, this ultimate sacrifice, this ultimate act of 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 unsurpassable love it it, it releases the deepest magic of God's perfect love and it is a bomb that blows apart the entire demonic realm praise God Uh, the cross is the atom bomb Of God's perfect love, the ultimate sacrifice, the God coming down an infinite distance, entering into our sin and condemnation, taking it upon himself, dying freely for a race of people who could not deserve it less, you can't get a greater sacrifice than that, so you can't get a greater love than that, so you can't get a greater power than that, and so the cross becomes the atom bomb by which God blows apart the hold that Satan had on us. It's the atom bomb which God blows apart all condemnation, all of the guilt, all, of the, the, all that the accuser had on us, praise God. Every chain, every bondage is blown apart on Calvary. Everything the enemy has on us is blown apart on Calvary, praise God. It's the wisdom of God that, that, that orchestrates this and, and, and brings about our liberation. And so it's the, the atom bomb that sets us free. Sets us free. Sets us free. There is nothing that the enemy has on us anymore. Uh, There's nothing out there anymore that can be used against us. All the ammunition has been blown sky high. And we are free, free from the condemnation, free from the oppression, uh, free from the hatred. Uh, We are free now to be reconciled to God. We're free, despite the dirty clothes that we still have, we're free to come to God with freedom and confidence to go boldly before the throne of grace. Because of this atom bomb exploding in the demonic realm, we are free to be holy and righteous before Him. Hallelujah. We are free to be seated with Christ in heavenly places like we sang about a little bit earlier. We're free to be enthroned in heavenly places with Christ. We're free to be in congruity with God. We're free to share in His love and His joy and His peace and His power and His grace and His mercy and Beauty! Hallelujah! Hallelujah! We're free. When the sun sets, free is free indeed. Uh, The bomb blew up every chain, and the the kicker is that we—the kicker is that we have Satan to thank for it. Yeah, laugh, laugh, because he's a laughing stock. See, this is how this is how he's a a, a public spectacle. He's a laughing stock. He's the one who brought it about. We have him to thank for this. Thank you, Satan. Man. <laughs> but see, it, it works like this. By his own free will and the free will of these angelic powers, they have made themselves evil, so they transform themselves into beasts who don't get love and therefore don't get the wisdom of God that's motivated by love. And see, God always brings good out of evil, yeah. He'll always find some good use for it. And so, God finds a good use for the evil of these beings' incapacity to understand love and to understand wisdom. You know, he just brings good out of evil. So God makes himself into a vulnerable human being and walks right into their domain of authority, this earth, knowing full well that, that uh, they, they won't have a clue what's going on. The queen thinks she's winning. So much for love. Do you really think you could set Edmund free by dying for him? Oh, you just despair. No, you're going to die and you're not saving anybody. They're Blind, blind to what's really going on. God God comes into this domain knowing that the demonic powers won't have a clue about his plan, but also knowing that they won't be able to resist this opportunity. He's vulnerable now. He's killable. It it was was God's brilliant sting operation. It was the greatest military strategy ever imagined. It was the greatest military victory ever won. As always, God finds a way. This is what he's always doing. In his infinite wisdom, he finds a way to turn evil back on itself. To cause evil to self implode. I, I call it, uh, in this book I'm doing now, divine Aikido. Aikido is this, this uh, martial arts strategy of taking the uh, aggressor, and it, it, you're non violent, but you just turn the aggressor's aggression towards themselves. You see, you just turn it back on themselves. You find a way of deflecting it. And so God practices divine Aikido on Calvary. In His infinite wisdom, He finds a way. To get Satan to unemploy himself. (laughs) He finds a way to uh, have Satan uh, forfeit his right to ever accuse us again. He he finds a way to get Satan and the powers to blow up the the, the ammo, (laughs) this arsenal that they had against us. They're the ones who blew it up. So they got nothing else anymore. Praise God. He finds a way to get this roaring lion to pull out his own teeth. (laughs) So we have a toothless lion out there. You know who you are in Christ. He, the, the enemy's got nothing but gums against you. <laughs> he, 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 he's, he's toothless and he's the one who pulled out his own teeth. Praise God. It's the infinite wisdom of God. God finds a way to use Satan's evil to cancel all that he had against us. He finds a way of using Satan's evil to set us free. He finds a way of using Satan's evil to triumph over Satan and the powers. He finds a way of using Satan's evil to make them into a mockery because they're the ones who did it. They unemployed themselves. They're the ones who nailed all of our sins uh, on the cross and therefore took away the arsenal. The wisdom of God. Oh, what a God we serve, amen? What a God. What a God. He's infinitely wise. His intelligence can't be fathomed. Uh, He's a God of unlimited intelligence, unlimited wisdom, unlimited beauty, unlimited love, unlimited grace. Oh, the wisdom of God to bring this about. See, people who just get off on God's power, I mean, God is all powerful for sure, but but if, if that's the only thing you look at. Like, God's got to kind of control everything. No, He would control everything if He wasn't smart. You know, if, if you're not smart, you got to control everything. People who are control freaks just don't trust their own wisdom to bring things about or their own character. But see, God's got wisdom and He's got character. He doesn't need to control everything. He's not controlling what Satan does, He just outsmarts Him. He outsmarts Him, praise God. It's a sting operation. He wins, praise God. Hallelujah! Amen. One more thing, one more thing. Close with this. Uh, Paul says this. Uh, He says, he, he was called to make plain to everyone. I love this stuff. To make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, the mystery we've been talking about, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. No one else knew about it. Because God who created all things, his intent, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. To the rulers, our content. There's that word again. The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Okay, look at folks. Through the church, that's us. If you if you are a believer, you're a disciple of Jesus. Now, you may have do to close on, but your life is surrendered to him, and you're moving in that direction. Then you're part of the church. And one of the jobs of the church, one of the main jobs of the church is to make known to the authorities the manifold wisdom of God. Uh, now, they already know it in one sense, but our job is to remind them. <laughs> you lost. We're to make known to them the manifold wisdom of God. Manifold means multi-layered, multi-layered. God accomplishes a lot of things with one stroke. and That's what he did on Calvary. So we are, to, we are to live in a way and think in a way and speak in a way and pray in a way. Everything we do should reflect the truth, to put on display to the powers we're always out there, we're to put on display the, the truth that they were outwitted by God and that they have been defeated by God's wisdom and that they uh, have been made into a laughing stock. The way that we live, the way that we speak, the way that we think is to put that on display. Uh, you know, One of the primary ways that we do that is uh, by having, it's, it's right here in the verse, is by having freedom and confidence when we go to the throne. We put on display the fact that the enemy's got nothing on us. When we When we refuse to let the accuser get into our head, we're putting on display the wisdom of God in defeating them. When we refuse to believe a lie and refuse to let the enemy compromise our freedom and confidence before God. When the enemy's pointing out our dirty clothes, we need to hear God rebuke the enemy, even though we got dirty clothes. We need to trust that God's love is infinitely greater than our dirty clothes. Praise God. And when we trust God in that way, when we trust the character of God, when we understand that God's not the accuser, but He's the defender, and the one who rebukes the accuser, we're putting on display the wisdom of God. And when we don't fear the enemy, people who fear the enemy, you know, he's, not only is He defeated, He's a laughing stock. He's a laughing stock. He's an idiot. He's an idiot. So we're to live with this knowledge that, that if we know who we are in Christ and we stand in the freedom and the confidence that we have in Christ, then, then, then the enemy not, is not to be feared. He's to be laughed at. And I'm not saying we should get cocky or anything like that. No, we, outside of Christ, we're, we're goners. But, but in Christ, we're to understand that he's a laughingstock. He's been, he's been humiliated. And we don't have to hate the enemy. We don't have any kind of hatred. We just understand he's, he's been outwitted. And we live in a way that puts that on display, that announces that, that makes it clear. Oh, when, when, when we, we just trust that God's character is bigger than our dirty clothes, yeah. and, and, we, and we don't find that, we're putting on display. We refuse to be condemned. We refuse to let condemnation compromise our freedom and confidence. And the, another way that we do it, and we're going to end with this, is simply by saying it. We make known to the powers and authorities the truth that they've been outwitted. And so we can just declare it. It's good to declare it. That declaration solidifies truth in our soul. So I'm going to end by declaring that. You want to declare something this morning? You want to declare something this morning? All right, okay, stand up. Uh, join hands and just repeat after me. We're gonna just and, and, and when you repeat after me, I, you know, say it from your gut. I mean, this is something I, I, I've been told that, that the, the principalities and powers are, are hard of hearing, so we, we got to shout it. Okay, I, I want to shout this. Okay, to the the the, 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 the that realm and, and make it known. So, from your heart, say, let, let's, let's say this: I, the Father, Abba, Father. We, declare we declare that you are Lord. You are, Lord. You are God. You are our creator. And you are victorious. victorious. And we declare declare to the principalities principalities and to the powers powers that you you have been been defeated. defeated. You You have been been outwitted. outwitted. You You have no authority authority on us. us. You You have no claim on us. And we declare that in Christ there's no condemnation. Who can lay any charge to God's elect? If God be for us, who can be against us? No one! No one! Nothing! We are free! We are cleansed! We are forgiven! We are redeemed! We are reconciled! The enemy is defeated, and And our our God is victorious. Stand in that freedom. Live in that truth. Live in that truth. We serve God who has outsmarted the enemy and the stone tablets have been broken forever, forever, forever. Hallelujah. Not just just our sin being forgiven. No, the charge of our indebtedness, the power of the the whole economy has been blown up for us who are in debt. (laughs) We can never be charged with that again. Stand in that freedom. Praise God. Uh, As I close, I'm going to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And If you have any need whatsoever, I encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Don't take that burden out with you alone. No, This is what the church is for. Let these folks pray with you. Uh, In in, in Jesus' name, I commissioned you to go out and live in the truth that you are free. Live in the truth that you belong to God. Live in the truth that he calls you to share his love with every person that you see. Be a blessing machine. Be a conduit of love. Be a peacemaker as you go out into a world of darkness. Shine a light in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.